Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, March 28, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this talk, legal analyst and journalist Joan Biskupic, in conversation with White House correspondent Marcia Coyle, discusses Chief Justice John Roberts' momentous career. Please note that this program was briefly interrupted by a fire alarm. Well, good evening. It's wonderful to be back with all of you here tonight, and especially wonderful to be here with my friend, uh, my colleague, my Supreme Court uh, watcher, as I am, to talk about Joan's terrific new book about the Chief Justice of the United States, uh, John Roberts, Jr. I'm going to start tonight by trying to give all of us a sense of John Roberts, the man, before we talk about John Roberts, the justice on the Supreme Court. So, Joan, I want to start with a letter that you have reprinted in your book. This was a letter that John Roberts wrote when he was 13 years old to the head of a all-male Catholic high school that he wanted to attend. So he started, it's a short letter. Dear Mr. Moore, the main reason I would like to attend La Lumiere School is to get a better education. I've always wanted to stay ahead of the crowd And I feel that the competition at La Lumiere will force me to work as hard as I can. At an ordinary high school, it would probably be easy to stay ahead. I realize that going to La Lumiere will be a lot of study and hard work. But I feel confident that these labors will pay off in large amounts when it comes time to apply for admission to college. I'm sure that by attending and doing my best at La Lumiere, I will assure myself of a fine future. I won't be content to get a good job by getting a good education. I want to get the best job by getting the best education. (laughs) Sincerely yours. (laughs) So Joan was telling me this is why she loves New Yorkers. The fire alarm goes off, you get up, you walk out. There are no complaints. Nobody has to tell you what to do. You're real pros. <laughs> well, did you hold that thought about that letter? <laughs> I, I hope so. I have to tell you that I read it, read it to my husband, and the first thing out of his mouth was, he didn't write it, his mother did. <laughs> Okay, but Joan, I have a feeling this was all John Roberts, and I wanted to ask you, do we see in this letter the mirror of the man who uh, man he would become, and where does this come from? This One of your sources said he was hard, hardwired for success. John Roberts probably did write that letter entirely himself, uh, and I, I did talk to him about it. He Even from a young age, uh, one of the anecdotes I got from an aunt of his was about how uh, she went over to the, the Roberts' house for dinner, and the first thing the mother said was, look, he got all A's on his report card, and an uncle pulled out a dollar bill for him. And this was in the early 60s. 
well before he wrote that letter. So I think he was ready to write that kind of letter when he was 13. And you do see him till today standing out from the crowd. That school he ended up in, La Lumere, was really character forming for him. It had opened uh, in northern Indiana just a few years before he was high school age. So it was just perfect timing. And of course, he gets in and he's first in his class. I think that letter, Marcia, reveals his determination, his focus, you know, that line about, I don't want to just get a good job, I want to get a great job. Right. I don't want to be just an associate justice, I want to be the chief. <laughs> you know? So you, you, you can feel some of that. And of course, you know, he didn't decide he gets to be chief. Uh, lots of factors went into his becoming chief, but uh, he has certainly been on a trajectory straight up since La Lumiere. That's right, he has. Um, I wanted to ask you, we're going to jump forward now to John Roberts, the adult, and John Roberts, the father. And he gave a very interesting speech uh, at his son's school. And uh, the speech got fairly wide coverage in the media because it was different. He, he basically wished the students that they would encounter throughout their lives bad things, not, not terrible things, but disappointments, and that they would learn from those. And I wondered, you know, here is somebody who, as you said, was on a tra- trajectory of success, doesn't appear to have had any of those, but did he? You know, when you look at his life, are there some character-forming disappointments in his own life that make him who he is today? I asked people in his family, his friends, was there ever anything he was bad at? Can you think of any setbacks? And... Some of his friends from La Lumiere would say things like, well, he wasn't a really fast runner, you know? <laughs> and I said, can you give me a little bit more? And, uh, you know, all right, so he wasn't great at all the sports, but he basically did everything. In fact, Ken Starr referred to him as Mr. Everything at La Lumiere because he, he saw that influence and John Roberts continued to talk about the, the school. I can tell you the one setback that um, ended up being reversed in the end was when he was nominated by George H.W. Bush to the District uh, of Columbia U.S. Appeals Court, uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, as it's known, back in 1992 when he was very young. He was only about uh, 37, I believe. And he didn't get on because the Democrats controlled the Senate at the time. But arguably, if he had gotten on then in 1992, he wouldn't be sitting at the Supreme Court now because he would have had so much more of a record that might have been dissected and prevented him. So those kinds of things were the, the few little instances <laughs> that, that, that folks mentioned because I was looking for something that mm-hmm. didn't go right for him. You know, he, um, you situated us, Marsha, in his boyhood where he was one of four children, the only boy with three sisters, Uh, He had his father's name, John Glover Roberts, Jr. He really looked up to his father, who was a steel industry executive, and, you know, always had high high hopes for himself. And the speech that Marsha refers to that he gave at his son's graduation is filled with the idea that you should have setbacks so that you continue to be persistent, but his setbacks were not major. Right. I think it was uh, maybe Ken Starr in your book who also said that the roots of Robert's character were not only his time at La Lumiere, but was also his deeply Catholic upbringing. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yes, he grew up in northern Indiana in an enclave uh, called Long Beach that had started as a vacation area for people from Chicago back in uh, the early part of the century, you know, trying to escape the heat and congestion of the city during the summers. And it's a lovely place, a lovely place uh, to grow up and uh, very, you know, a lot of the same kind of people, uh, very white, very Catholic, very tight-knit community. And I think that that was very much character-forming for him. When he went to Harvard, he graduated first in his class from La Lumiere, and then he goes to Harvard, and he finishes in three years. And he was a little bit turned off by the liberalism mm-hmm. at, uh, at Harvard uh, as an undergrad and then for law school. And, but while he was there, you know, he continued to practice his faith. He is... Um, uh, he, he has maintained his Catholicism. He and his wife, Jane, uh, very strong practitioners. And, uh, you know, we do, we do have a lot of Catholics on the court, we but we do, yes, but, we, but there have been Catholics who have not been conservative, such as William Brennan and Sonia Sotomayor. So I don't, I don't want to define that uh, so much with him, but it was, his faith has been very important to him. And the one thing I wanted to mention, though, even though he bristled against the liberalism at Harvard, just as he's graduating, conservatism is in ascendance. You know, when he finishes his two clerkships, Ronald Reagan has just been elected. Mm-hmm. And I think you mentioned, what did he hear in Ronald Reagan? <laughs> the call. He said, there he was working for then Associate Justice William Rehnquist at the Supreme Court in a very prestigious judicial clerkship. clerkship. And he's wondering what to do next. And he listens to Ronald Reagan in January of 1981 and he hears him speak about his agenda, both economic and social. And John Roberts says, I heard the call. I wanted to be part of that. And going back to Ken Starr again, Ken Starr is throughout this entire book. Yes, he is. Strangely. Uh, Ken Starr at that time was already working for Ronald Reagan. And um, uh, Justice Rehnquist at the time uh, called up Ken Starr and said, I have this young man here who I think it would be important if he did some more government service before becoming a... a private practitioner, and they hired John Roberts on the spot, and the rest is history. Yes. I was curious if you could describe for everybody uh, what his chambers are like at the Supreme Court, because as you and I know, the justices' chambers are often a reflection of who they are, what their background is, what their interest has been. You go into Justice Ginsburg's chambers, there's art, borrowed art from all over the world. There's opera playing in the background. Other justices uh, have shown, uh, I think, Justice O'Connor or Southwestern uh, roots. What about Roberts? What do you see? Okay, you, you go in. He, he has um, a large chambers as chief, so he has a couple different sitting rooms. And in the room that we were in most, there's uh, a Notre Dame football <laughs> he was, you know, if you grow up in northern Indiana and you don't end up at Harvard, <laughs> you might have ended up at Notre Dame. So he's always been a Notre Dame football fan. So he has a football that's been signed uh, by actually a couple different coaches at, over time. Uh, he has the art that he has chosen, landscape from uh, Indiana and from Maine, where they have a vacation home. He has pictures uh, of himself with uh, William Rehnquist who he worked for, as I mentioned, but then also with um, a picture of Henry Friendly, who was the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit judge who he first worked with and who he had very high regard for. 
pictures of his children. Uh, and, and of course, all the U.S. reports, the bound law books are there. Uh, so it's, it's, you can see different parts of his life play out there. But the one thing I was going to mention about what was in his chambers, you know, it, he has a lot of people come in, a lot of guests come into his chambers. But back when he was a young lawyer, his offices were sort of known for being devoid of any kind of pictures. Mm -hmm. Marcia and I had a colleague, a wonderful man by the name of David Pike. Mm -hmm. Remember David? And he would he would, uh, worked for a legal trade magazine uh, newspaper, and he often said that it was so hard to get a, a feel on John Roberts when he dealt with him one on one, and he he did interview him several times. And one thing that struck him was that you go into his office, and it would be piled with briefs and papers and not a sign of anything personal, that there were no photos, no, no, uh, nothing that would reveal his extracurricular interests, even if it was in Notre Dame football. Right. That's it's really interesting. Yeah. And that, the one thing I, I didn't get a sense of from, from your book uh, was whether he has any uh, close or trusted friends among the other justices. Because as you know, you know, we, and everybody knows there was the famous Scalia-Ginsburg friendship. Uh, Justice Breyer and Justice O'Connor were close. Um, uh, I think Justice Stevens and Justice Souter were close. What about Roberts? I don't think there's another justice who I would describe as a close pal of his. I think he's friendly with, with many of He's friendly with all of them. He, uh, I think he, he felt... I think he felt a certain closeness with Justice Scalia, in part because of their backgrounds were similar, even though Justice Scalia was a generation ahead of him. And I think that Elena Kagan is trying to become more of a partner to Mm -hmm. work on things together. And I have to say his background is also similar to Brett Kavanaugh. Um, They they knew each other from... um, from social activities in the uh, Chevy Chase, Maryland and D.C. area, belonged to the same club, played poker together at times. So there's a, a bit of a palship there, too. But does he like beer? Oh, sorry. sorry, sorry. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I'm sorry, Jeff. <laughs> that, was, that was a cheap shot. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's been a long day. There was a fire alarm. My pearls you could use fell a beer. off. <laughs> Okay. Uh, if, you, if, if you had to uh, pick some adjectives to describe John Roberts to somebody who you know, doesn't watch the court or go okay. to or, oral arguments, mm-hmm. how would you describe him? Determined, focused, smart, strategizing, controlling, <laughs> very controlling, very aware. Uh, a real uh, history buff, loves history, yeah. uh, devoted to his family. Always prepared, always prepared. That's, he was a, an excellent oral advocate, and he shows up at the bench, always prepared for cases. Most of them do, but not all, all the time. Uh, he likes things to be predictable. Mm-hmm. He likes to know what's going to happen. Um, he's not a naturally spontaneous man. Uh, when we heard him say in November that line to rebuke President Trump, there are no Obama judges, there are no Trump judges, there are no Bush or Clinton judges, 
I think he was waiting for his moment to say that. That was not off the cuff. He's not a man who speaks off the cuff. Very studied. He, lo- he still loves history. Uh, before he went to law school, he was going to get a Ph.D. in history, and he still is a student of history. So was uh, Justice Kagan. She thought she would t- teach history as well before she went to law school. They have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of extracurricular activities, he, you know, he still reads a lot of history. He reads biographies. He uh, likes to golf. And for a while, he actually was a runner, and he mm-hmm. ran a couple of marathons when he was a young, obviously, when he was a young man. Yeah, I yes. didn't know that. Yes. Um, there is a reference in your book, though, that uh, shows a side of him within the court that uh, gives one pause. He was called, I can't remember by whom, King John. Yes. Can you tell yes. us how that evolved? Yes. I, you know, he came in when he was just 50 years old, had a mere two years' experience on the D.C. Circuit, and had never even been on the Supreme Court, whereas when William Rehnquist was elevated to chief in 1986, he had already had 14 years as an associate justice. He knew the personalities and how to work with his colleagues. And as Justice Scalia told me, Bill Rehnquist had enough time in to toughen his hide. And in comes young John Roberts, who hadn't had a lot, really not much managerial experience to speak of, someone who, frankly, is naturally reserved and even shy. Those are two other adjectives. And I think he initially had trouble navigating among the justices. And, and, still, and I think it's, it's a constant work in progress about you know, how, how to persuade them, how to work with them. You know, they're all appointed for life. Uh, they're all set in their ways and I think the way that he has um, set in their ways, for better or worse, you know, in terms of the kind of tight court community, and when you talk about, you know, things like, you know, office space and perks and, and just the running of the building, the chief can be quite controlling. And some of the, um, the staffers there had taken to, you know, in a sort of a little whispery way, calling him King John. And there have been... Uh, some resentments that build up over time that I, I subtly get at. And it, I'm glad you asked about this, Marcia, because I wasn't sure how to handle this. I started picking it up in my interviews even before I uh, chose Chief Justice Roberts as a subject. It emerged in some of the research I was doing back when I was writing about Justice Scalia and Justice Sotomayor. And then the more I probed at it, the more I, I found some elements of distrust, a little bit of elements of resentment with him, frankly, you know, wanting to set himself above the others, just as you read in that letter. And I didn't know how much to make of it. So I, I mention it at little points in the book. But what I end up saying is that it doesn't really affect the law in the end. It might affect how they navigate on cases. It might affect how they, who picks up the phone to work on a compromise, who might, uh, who might, feel like backing off of a concurrence that the chief might not want to have stated. But in the end, it, it's more a, a human dynamic element than something that affects the law we all live under. Uh, and one, uh, one time I was interviewing Justice Ginsburg, and uh, Roberts had been chief for a little while at that point. And I asked her, uh, has the chief justice changed at all since, he's, since he became chief justice? And she said, he hasn't changed since law school. <laughs> and I, I sort of assumed she meant his 
ideological views. And, uh, but I'm wondering, has the court changed John Roberts in any way? That's a good question. I'll, I'll just mention that her, her daughter, Jane, knew John Roberts at Harvard. And uh, so oh, she, well. she had gotten a, an advance glimpse of the chief. And uh, she mentioned that to me. And she also mentioned she referred to him as being born conservative, just like <laughs> Nino <laughs> was, was Justice Ginsburg's line. I think the court has changed him. I think it's, you know, being chief justice comes with great advantages and benefits because you preside over these the cases, you start the discussion in the conference, you can steer the, the conferences, their private meetings that they decide cases. And he has control to steer things in many ways, but he also has the weight of the institution on him. Mm-hmm. And he also has to deal with these personalities. It's, you know, it has, it's a little bit of a personnel job too. And since he wasn't, he wasn't accustomed to that, I think it's I think in the beginning, he wanted to try to make sure everyone got along more. He wanted to build more consensus. And uh, that's, that's been a bit of a bumpy, bumpy road for him. It's like uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist once told us, it's like herding cats. Right, right. right. And, and Chief Justice Rehnquist would just kind of let it roll he off did, his yes. shoulders. He'd be like, yeah, well, whatever. And, and they liked him. That was the one thing I realized. Mm-hmm. He was actually a tough chief to follow not in terms of the law, but in terms of personalities. He was quite beloved by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yes. She really liked him, and she, she, she still would refer to my chief. And you know, <laughs> the current chief would be like, stop that, you know? <laughs> uh, let's now switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, Roberts, the justice, the judge. Uh, if you had to pick three decisions that he has written Uh, or uh, if it's not a majority opinion, at least it was an important concurrence or dissent, three that sort of define him in his tenure thus far, which three would you pick? In order of importance, but not in order that I want to discuss them because I want to end up with the health care. The Affordable Care Act case in 2012 that I think we'll devote a little more time to, the Shelby County versus Holder case in 2013, which cut back pretty dramatically on the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And then the the opinion he wrote in the parents-involved school integration case, where he interpreted Brown v. Board of Education in a way that really ran counter to the advocates behind Brown v. Board and to most liberal... The Warren Court. To the Warren Court and to just about every liberal saw his interpretation as being off kilter, but he felt really strongly about so that. So I'd say those three. Okay. Uh, which one would you like to start with? Well, should we do Shelby County? Yeah, why don't we do Shelby? Okay. That's, that's, and that's something we're continuing. That's, that's a decision that has not died in a sense. Right. It had huge ramifications. Five to four, the justices eliminate uh, what, was no, what was known as Section 5 and uh, Section 4, formula for this preclearance that had been built into the Voting Rights Act that required certain states and municipalities that had a history of discrimination to have any election change cleared first by the Justice Department before it took effect to ensure that it wouldn't discriminate against African Americans, Latinos, or any other racial minorities. And the idea here was that certain places, especially in the South, 
had had this, you know, these histories of bias, and the federal government wanted to make sure that they weren't continually contracting the franchise for for minority voters. And John Roberts had opposed this so-called preclearance for a long time, back to his years in the Reagan administration, or at least wanted it narrowed, really felt that localities should be able to set their own policies and the federal government shouldn't be meddling here. And this has been, you know, a pretty strong project of his along the way. And what we saw in first a 2009 case where he kind of laid the groundwork for what he did in 2013 when he wrote the majority opinion to say this is no longer needed. He famously said in these two cases, things have changed in the South. We no longer have these kinds of problems. Uh, He pointed to the fact that Barack Obama had won the presidency and that you know, there are problems in the North, just like there are problems in the South, and the South shouldn't be singled out anymore. That's right. This was, uh, would you say it's sort of the culmination of his views on race? Definitely. And uh, we saw certainly indications of those views in the memos he wrote when he worked for Ronald Reagan and positions he took when he was Deputy Solicitor General for President George H.W. Bush. And then even in the... Okay, so he gets on the court in 2005. In 2006... It was the Texas uh, voting voting rights case where he refers to line drawing that's going to maximize uh, uh, the strength of black voters that had previously been diluted. And he refers to this, quote, sordid business, this divvying us up on the basis of race. He does not like any kind of racial classifications. He feels that they are are, uh, debilitating to racial minorities, they're stigmatizing, and that, as he wrote in the Parents Involved case that I referred to from 2007, <coughs> that they uh, that they actually are as bad as the kind of discrimination that led to racial remedies in the first place. So this is sort of typical and uh, ex- it, uh, exemplifies what you said about the uh, strategic aspect of Roberts. He goes step by step. So he starts in the Texas case. This is a sordid business, this, this divvying us up by race. Mm-hmm. He gets to parents involved. The way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And then we get to Shelby County. And so there's almost a progression in how you know, he right. moves. That's right. Very steady on the same track. That's why when we, people say now, what will he be like? Is he going to be the swing boat like Justice Kennedy? What I say is on race, he's, he's given us a, a very consistent pattern. Right. So um, just to move to health care, yeah. you, you, you came up with some original reporting in health care. didn't think it was possible after all that was written about Obamacare, but you did in terms of behind the scenes. So tell us a little bit about Robert's behind the scenes. Okay, so I'll bring you back to 2012. It's an election year. So every Republican candidate for president is speaking out against Barack Obama's signature domestic achievement, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, It's challenged in lower courts. And there are many provisions to the health care law, but the two main planks that are before the Supreme Court in this momentous case involved what we all referred to as the individual mandate. And that was the requirement that all individuals have insurance of one sort or another. And the other was uh, expansion of the Medicaid program to help uh, people near the poverty line nationwide. The Medicaid 
element did not get much attention. We were all sort of, we and the court were mainly focused on the individual mandate, and it was challenged as a violation of Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. So we have a three days of oral arguments. You, usually, cases get one hour of oral mm-hmm. arguments. So this was a really big deal, and I'm sure every single person in this room followed it in one way or another. And when the justices take their first private vote, the Friday of this week after these three days of arguments, it's five to four to strike down the individual insurance requirement. But what I found out was that they had voted to uphold the Medicaid expansion as every lower court did. And nobody, again, this was not in the public eye as much, but it was very important. It was a very important consequential part of the law, but everybody was focused on this individual mandate. So it's five to four with the five conservatives, including the chief justice, ready to strike it down as a violation of the Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. And the only question remaining when they walked out of the conference was what would fall with it? And the chief starts to have second thoughts about where the rest of his conservative brethren want to go on this. They want to strike down the whole law. You know, this is nearly a thousand pages of provisions. Many of you remember, you know, the thing that said, you know, your children can stay on your health policy until they're 26. You can't, uh, you know, insurers can't cut off people because of, you know, cancer or other pre-existing conditions. You know, so many things that were important to many people and uh, which... Again, you know, but you know, businesses were very mixed on it. So we remember the controversy and the very political nature of it. So the chief starts to have second thoughts about taking down the whole law as the rest, the other conservatives who had voted against it, uh, wanted to do. And he's he starts negotiating with two of the liberal justices, Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan who since then have become partners on other cases. And he decides, essentially, to find new grounds to uphold it under the taxing power. Now, we all know that part because we know that in the end that when he announced the opinion from the bench, he said it couldn't stand under the commerce power, but it could stand under this taxing power. And everyone was sort of, many people were surprised. I have to say, I did I did actually predict from all the time that he was going to vote that way. But the thing was, I was actually wrong because he didn't vote that way first. First, he had voted to strike it down, and then he changed his mind. But then not only did he change his mind on upholding the requirement that we all have to buy health insurance, he then flipped his vote on whether the expansion for Medicaid was constitutional, and he instead said that that should be struck down and he had been working with Justices Elena Kagan and Stephen Breyer, and they switched their votes too, and that gets struck down. And that was, I thought, one of the oddest parts of that decision was to see Kagan and Breyer vote to strike down the Medicaid expansion. It just seems so out of character. And and why would they do that? They would they they were giving cover to Roberts or uh, trying to show that it was bipartisan. And yet, they basically threw under the bus the poor, the elderly, who who would benefit from that Medicaid expansion. But at the time, everybody said the states were going to take the Medicaid expansion and run with it. Well, it didn't happen. Right. It was it was uh, at the discretion of the states, and and people thought the states are going to get free essentially free money free. to expand, yes. but because a lot of Republican-led states didn't want to do what Obama was essentially giving them, they didn't. 
But here's the thing. At the time, I look back and I think, why didn't I probe that Medicaid vote more when, when Justices Kagan and Breyer suddenly were against the expansion? Because I had written a story about how vigorously they had challenged um, Paul Clement, mm-hmm. the former Solicitor General under President Bush, who had argued that the Medicaid expansion was unconstitutional. And then all of a sudden they flipped the other way. Well, I believe in speaking with all the justices about this, is that they felt over time that since John Roberts was moving in another direction, and believe it or not, they didn't feel confident until almost the end when the decision was announced that he was going to stick with them. That's how much things were in flux behind the scenes, that they thought, well, they should give him a little bit of something. So it was, I was really surprised when I found out I suspected one flipped vote because, you know, our colleague Jan Crawford had known about that one and written about it. And nobody else had been able to match it at the time. Although I, you know, I found out from justices that that had indeed happened. But when I found out about the second switch vote, I remember calling, this is as a reporter, you're thinking you need to double check this. You want to make sure that you have found out this correctly, but you also don't want to take it to too many people because you don't want it reported before your book is going to come out. But I thought, I thought that was amazing. It really goes to show the kind of compromises that go on behind the scenes. Well, in fact, you said something that really struck me. Uh, you said that in the Health Care Act, Roberts acted in short like a politician. Yeah. And, uh, and I would as- assume that you would also say today, so did Kagan and Breyer. Yeah. I, you know, using the politician in the broadest sense of cutting a deal, giving a little, giving up a little um, to get a result that a majority will accept. And what I write in the end is that, uh, you know, it wasn't pretty. Uh, It wasn't, the decision was criticized in many ways for lacking coherence and a real strong legal grounding, but the law ended up being upheld. He brought together competing factions and... People not on the extremes, people, many people in the middle gave him credit for that. And I think that it, that action has continued to define him in the public, way, public eye as more moderate than the conservative that he is on many other issues. Right. Uh, did you ask him at all if he had any regrets about any of his decisions? And I'm thinking in particular about Shelby County, because after that decision was issued we saw almost immediately states in the South implementing uh, voter suppression measures or making it harder for uh, voters to register. Uh, And also uh, Citizens United. Mm -hmm. He didn't write the majority opinion in Citizens United, but he wrote a very strong concurring opinion. And uh, certainly uh, he's, he's pretty much identified with that as well. Does he have it? Did you ask him if he has any regrets? I I can't tell you exactly how he characterized certain things because so much of our conversations were off the record and we were constantly negotiating what would go on the record or not. (coughs) But I can tell you from everything he has written and from what I have observed is that he just feels that the court itself is right to leave it to elected officials, that the court shouldn't be in the business of policing some of these voting violations, you know, lo- localities should be in charge of that. And in terms of the speech, the Citizens United, he believes more money, 
and more money, more speech, speech as money, the better. Uh, he, he doesn't see the practical consequences the way, the way many people do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you, when you talk about the voting rights situation, after the Shelby County ruling in 2013, almost immediately in Texas and in North Carolina, the state legislatures passed restrictions. You know, they, they implemented voter ID laws. They redistricted in, a way, in ways that were immediately challenged as, um, as hurting minority voters. Right. Uh, I, I don't want to do what I always do, and that is I, I never get to a lot of your questions. So I'm, I'm just going to ask okay. you one more. And, okay. and that is, how, was, how does he compare in terms of interviewing and reporting on him to the other justices that you have written about, O'Connor, Sotomayor, and Scalia? He was my toughest subject, start to finish. And I have to say, you know, okay, just to remind everyone, and I know Marcia knows this, when, when, I, when I did the book on Justice Scalia, he sat with me for 12 sessions all on the record. He just talked and talked and talked and talked. And I'd be exhausted. I'd be like, I got to go now. You know? and, and there were so many times when I was speaking with the chief where I thought, you know, if we had those, you know, cartoonish thought bubbles over our heads, his would say something like, you know, I can't wait for her to be done. And I, mine would say, I just wish you were Scalia. You know, because, <laughs> because it was so hard. First of all, uh, I do not like dealing with subjects who only want to speak off the, the record, record or on background because I don't feel, I can't, I can't then take the, I can't take the material out to double check it and test it the way I want to. Um, and, you know, it, it's just harder all around. And, you know, he had his reasons. He, he definitely did not want to give me much in any way. I, you know, even from things like, you know, trying to find out more about his family, you know, did, he was, you know, raised in the early 60s, you know, was your mother cooking, making jello and cooking with Campbell's soup <laughs> and things that, you know, were, were all happening then. It was very, very hard to get that kind of information out of him, let alone what you just asked about, does he have regrets about Shelby County? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand. Okay, so let's take some questions, sure. right? When appointing, appointing Roberts as Chief Justice, did President Bush ever consider elevating one of the existing associate justices to the position? This is a great question because he, he owes his job to the way he was first appointed as an associate justice and to Hurricane Katrina. Okay, so here we are. It's uh, July 1st, 2005. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor announces that she's going to retire. It's a huge deal, as we all know, and we can talk at length about that at another (laughs) time. But the president, George W. Bush, is looking for a more moderate individual to replace Sandra Day O'Connor, who's kind of in the middle. And at this point, John Roberts, his, his memos from the Reagan years had not been made public. He had built up this reputation as a you know, fairly moderate jurist on the D.C. Circuit. He had represented all manner of clients in, in private practice. So he was an ideal candidate for an associate judge, judgeship, uh, justiceship. And he was only 50. So he gets named to that, but he... And, and everyone's thinking Chief Justice uh, William Rehnquist has thyroid cancer. He'll probably, you know, he'll probably have to step down soon. And uh, President Bush was thinking maybe possibly elevate uh, Justice Scalia, possibly look for a more um, 
a more seasoned jurist for that position. But what happens in the interim before Justice Scalia does die on September 3rd is Hurricane Katrina happens. And many of you will remember how, you know, we have, you know, hundreds, more than a thousand people end up dying in the Gulf region. President Bush is roundly criticized for his, um, the federal government's involvement in trying to solve the problem of many blacks who were dying and suddenly without their homes down there. And so the administration was just embattled when just the chief justice dies. And by this point, John Roberts has put on a really nice show for senators, not in any kind of confirmation hearing, but in the courtesy visits. And we was getting all sorts of great, great reviews and accolades. And on the morning after Justice, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist's death, it was a Saturday night. You probably remember where you were when you got oh, the yes. news. And the next morning, uh, President Bush calls everybody to, their off- to his office, and he says, he says to Dick Cheney, who was a real booster for Justice Scalia possibly getting elevated, he says, Dick, I'm going with John Roberts. And there was really not much discussion. It was John Roberts, and he was suddenly going to be Chief Justice of the United States at age 50. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak to Roberts' views on the Fourth Amendment vis-a-vis new technologies? and how that fits into his overall jurisprudence. Well, this is an area where he's, he's tried to kind of carve out a special, mm-hmm. uh, special role in terms of cell phone use and um, uh, you know, the digital age. He, he, in traditional Fourth Amendment cases, uh, I would say he, he's been quite conservative mm-hmm. in terms of you know, uh, you know, car searches, searches of, you know, the traditional defendant rights questions. But uh, cell phone technology, he had the, um, he wrote the opinion for the court in terms of, you know, protecting more what's in our our, our iPhones. And there was a great uh, Q&A among the justices. It showed him not to be as enlightened. And it, it led to some fun banter between uh, Justices uh, Ginsburg and the chief and Justice, Justice Sotomayor and the chief, where... Justice, Justice Roberts thought, why would anybody ca- carry two, cell- two iPhones? Wouldn't it just reveal that you were some sort of criminal? And, you know, like, <laughs> you know, he obviously wasn't like some of his colleagues are like, you know, one for work, one for, you know, one for the family kind of thing. But his, his clerks and others uh, certainly educated him on that. And he, is, he has been um, quite generous in protecting the Fourth Amendment rights in the digital age. Yeah, I think privacy is very big with him. And yes. didn't he also give a speech at his daughter's uh, a school about um, technology and, and the, the harms it, it might cause if you get too wrapped up in it? Absolutely right. It didn't take off. It didn't go as viral as it did for the son's speech. Right. Um, the daughter's speech was just uh, last year. In fact, she's a freshman in college right now, and that speech was um, last year for her high school graduation in suburban D.C. But he talked about that. He talked about trying to, to, try to pull pull oneself away from the t- high-tech world, just kind of just allow your thoughts to sit, sit for a while rather than be constantly looking at the screens. How did Roberts react when President Obama publicly criticized him over the Citizens United decision? Ooh, he was very angry about that. You know, they don't, they, this was at the State of the Union, as many of you remember, uh, and it was just, you know, a couple of days after the ruling in January 2010, when again, by a 5-4 vote, the Supreme Court conservative majority lifts 
regulations on corporations and labor unions uh, in, uh, in political campaigns. And President Obama criticizes the decision in front of them while, you know, it, to, to the entire chamber in the House. But there are the justices sitting there, you know, with their hands on their lap. They hate being there. They hate being part of this political spectacle. And then suddenly their decision is being criticized. And you might remember that Samuel Alito mouthed, not true. And that went viral. That went and, viral. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the chief hated that. He hated, you know, that all eyes were on them for it. And a few weeks after that incident, he spoke at the University of Alabama and said, you know, when people get invited to our place of business, we don't, you know, we don't hold them up for, you know, ridicule. We don't, we don't do that. It was like a pep rally. And, you know, he said, I don't know why we even have to go. But, you know, he feels the obligation and he's gone every year since. Sam Alito has not. <laughs> <laughs> what past justices does uh, Roberts especially admire? Ooh. Well, uh, Chief Justice Hughes, who, and uh, and Justice Marshall, who uh, you know the real the sort of fundamental founding. He was uh, he was not our first Chief Justice, but he was the Chief Justice who wrote Marbury versus Madison, who gave the Supreme Court its power to decide what the Constitution means. So he has a lot of regard for for John Marshall, and he's he said you know he's thought about how history will think of him, and he said you know. You're not going to be John Marshall, but you certainly don't want to be Roger Tawney, <laughs> who wrote uh, Dred Scott. But, you know, um, Chief Justice Hughes, who studied the court during the court packing era, you know, which you hear, you know, about today. So, yeah, yeah, you hear um, talk of today. So I, I would say uh, Hughes and Marshall. Would you comment on uh, Robert's health and how this will impact his longevity on the court? Are you talking about the epilepsy? Uh, that's think? the only thing okay. I know of. I mean, and we know so little, but right, <laughs> right. Um, he had uh, two epileptic seizures that ended up being made public, and from what I could tell, and this is it's very hard to get information on the justices' health situations. He hasn't had one since 2007 when he um, when he fell when he was up at um, the vacation home in Maine. And hit his head, and, and then it was revealed that he had had a seizure also in the early 90s on a golf course, as a matter of fact. So there were two instances, and uh, I have not seen anything or heard anything that would suggest that this is a deep and serious problem that prevents him in any way from doing his job. Uh, you know, people related various aches and pains of, you know, can't golf as well. Yeah, see, you know, how bad are things? He can't golf as well. You know, <laughs> back problems. Uh, but, you know, nothing, nothing serious. And he, the court has, uh, the court always had on its top floor a gym and Nautilus equipment, and the place was fondly known as the highest court in the land, the court up there. And he, uh, but now the justices have uh, another um, place where they can work out with weights, and uh, obviously Justice Ginsburg does some yes. work down there and at another place. And, uh, and, and I the, think he has said uh, that he's worked out with, with Breyer at times. Yeah, just as Breyer works out all the time, too. Yeah. But the, the, chief, the, chief, the chief works out and tries exactly. to stay healthy. And he is pretty fit. I, I say in the book you know, that he was, he was a high school wrestler. He, that was his sport. He was wrestling, and uh, I use it as a metaphor for his ability to leverage things. How do you anticipate Roberts will vote on the gerrymandering issue now before the court? 
Crystal ball time, Joe. Well, I'll tell you, I am one person who thinks that he has shut the door on partisan gerrymandering, that from everything I, I have observed of him, and, you know, it's, it's always dangerous to make predictions, and, um, you know, we can be wrong, but he does not want federal judges in the business of ruling on this extreme partisan gerrymandering that, you know, is a is a problem for so many states. I, my sense is he would rather leave it to elected officials. Uh, he's not crazy about bipartisan commissions that have, um, yeah, because yeah, he voted against, against that Arizona uh, uh, legislation of that type. But he, uh, he didn't tip his hand during the case that was heard just this week. But from what he wrote in last year's uh, partisan gerrymandering case from Wisconsin, I would suspect that he is not going to budge on that. Yeah. By the way, uh, later this month at the, uh, is it, do you say the Tribeca Film Festival? Uh, there's a documentary that's going to premiere called Slay the Dragon. Uh-huh. And it's all about gerrymandering. And uh, I was able to pre-screen it, and it's fascinating. Uh, it goes into um, the effort in Wisconsin that uh, came to the Supreme Court last term. And it also tells the story of the a grassroots effort in Michigan to get onto the ballot a question about uh, having redistricting done by a an independent bipartisan commission. And it's well worth your time to take a look at it. Uh, it's, it's really quite good. Um, okay, um, that's my plug. Uh, could good, you... Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a little tricky. Um, <laughs> could you comment on Robert's sending back, and I think this would be to the Tenth Circuit... Uh, the uh, complaints on Kavanaugh's performance at his hearing. I actually know a lot about this. Okay. Because I, uh, even before uh, the controversy over judges behaving badly with sexual harassment, especially with Alex, the claims against Alex Kaczynski in the Ninth Circuit, a project I had taken on um, at CNN was just how uh, people can complain about judges and what happens, what happens internally. Are they effectively policing their own? And one thing I discovered was the minute uh, a lower court judge uh, who's under scrutiny steps down, he or she is no longer subject of any kind of investigation. The individual judge can go off, earn earn his full pension. But the other way that somebody can uh, evade any kind of scrutiny is if he or she becomes a justice. The Supreme Court justices are not covered formally by the Federal Code of Ethics. So all these complaints were brought against Brett Kavanaugh, initially having nothing to do with what he said um, uh, in response to the allegations by uh, Professor uh, Christine Blasey Ford, but rather some of the things he had said about his record on the D.C. Circuit. There had been several uh, complaints lodged, and in the, in the end there were uh, scores of complaints lodged, and they went to the... Um, They were originally filed at the D.C. Circuit where Brett Kavanaugh had been sitting, and the Chief Justice transferred them to the Tenth Circuit so that um, what would appear to be a neutral arbiter would handle it. But, you know, the transfer itself was sort of meaningless because the justices are not covered. And sure enough, after several months, the Tenth Circuit came back and said, we have no jurisdiction here. Uh, we have no jurisdiction. He's a Supreme Court justice, and there's nothing we can do. And then that was appealed to uh, 
um, a, a, a higher committee made up still of in the, the judicial tenth, conference. Still with, no, still in the, <clears throat> excuse me, still in the Tenth Circuit. There were, uh, <clears throat> excuse Tenth me. Circuit of the, yeah. Tenth Circuit, right. Um, they expanded the, the, the commission at the Tenth Circuit. Right. These were, there were 81 appeals filed. And just recently, that commission uh, rejected all of the appeals uh, again on the same ground. On the same ground. But there were uh, there was a dis- two dis- well there was a dissenting vote, uh, one of the female judges on the Tenth Circuit, and also one of the judges recused himself for the reasons that the judge who dissented said, which was we shouldn't be doing this. Uh, we shouldn't be hearing appeals of our, our own decision. Now, at least two of the uh, people who brought appeals uh, say they are now, oh, and, and the judge who dissented said, this should go to the Judicial Conference of the United States now. That's the next step. And two of those who had appealed and had their appeals rejected has said they're taking it to the Judicial Conference. So it so- may end up back. Well, and John Roberts. Right, because what the Judicial Conference is, is a body of federal judges. It's, right. a, you know, it's all essentially an in-house review. And what the, this initial panel of the Tenth Circuit, then the broader panel of the Tenth Circuit said is, we don't have jurisdiction, and I cannot imagine yet an, another <laughs> panel of federal judges saying, suddenly they have jurisdiction, they have jurisdiction. Because, they, because everybody has said no. That's right. So but at that's least what happened with the complaint. They're trying to force the issue, and Congress, uh, as part of H.R. 1, which was the first bill mm-hmm. the House Democrats were able to pass, has a provision in it that is kind of a soft provision saying that the Supreme Court should adopt a code of ethics. And I believe uh, when... Kagan and Alito testified recently on the Supreme Court budget. They said that the Chief Justice uh, was actually looking at that. Whatever. That yeah. Is. Well. This, yeah. Well. <laughs> as you say, whatever that actually means, because it was Elena Kagan at the very end. She just sort of said something to the effect of, "P.S. The Chief Justice is thinking of possibly proposing that the Supreme Court have its own code of ethics. Code of ethics, but he hasn't brought it to the conference. He hasn't right. talked to the other justices about it." And I went up to the uh, court spokeswoman afterward and said, what can you tell us about this? And there was nothing to be told. Nothing. It really, it hasn't. It right, has, right. We don't know anything. Okay, yet. one last question, because okay. I think Dale's going to use her cane to get us off. Okay. <laughs> Do you know if Roberts has read or will read your book? No, I don't know. He, well, just so you all are lucky, it just came out this week. So he, yes, it's just been published. I made sure that his close friend from Harvard, uh, who asked me for an early copy, that he got an early copy. I made sure the court had an early copy. So uh, I do not think he has read the final version. Do you think he would tell you? Uh, You know, it's interesting. He is somebody who generally keeps a lot to himself, but I have found that I will often hear different things. (laughs) You'll hear I have a heard, reaction. I have heard. I have heard from oh. him in many ways. Okay. So right. I don't. I don't know how I will hear for this round. Well, there's lots more to this book. So you know, take your opportunity to get it and get a signed copy from Joan. It's really worthwhile reading. And thank, thank you very you so much. much. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.